and welcome to Sofa Symposium. We're your hosts. I'm Doug Baffin. I'm Chris Fendeman, and once again, keeping the hot streak going, we have a fresh new guest for you tonight. Emily, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Emily Evie. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, Emily. I am, like these lovely gentlemen, a 3L at UT Law. I am... What do I do outside of law school? Uh, I love watching TV and movies. I sometimes even read a book for fun. Um, I'm really interested in voting rights and election law and very little else about the law. And that's me. Awesome. That's one of the best uh, intros I think a guest has ever given, actually. Yeah. She also brought cookies, which is way more than any guest has ever done. Did you bring those cookies? That was me. Wow. Yeah. I did not even realize. Yeah. I brought the pie because it's pie day. It is pie day. Three... Happy pie day. Yes. Yeah. March 14th. How many digits of pi can you guys do? Uh, 3.14159265355989. Okay. That many. Listeners I, at I, home, don't check it. Just no. trust it. it I can not, get to I'm two not, six. I'm not super um, hip on the 989, but I remember in math class, uh, the in like seventh grade, my professor had the professor, my teacher had a cheerleading chant. Pi, pi, you're divine. Uh, 3.14159. Oh, and then I learned nice. the 26535 uh, after that. Three I can only get as far yeah. as the 265. But back in elementary school, I remember that I – this. do we remember all the dumb stuff we did in elementary school? So no. I began a little cult in which <laughs> your membership in the cult and your prestige within the cult would be dependent upon how many digits of pi you could remember you, just off the bat. Were you guys Pythagoreans? No, oh. sadly, because I didn't know about that in third grade. <laughs> but during third grade, I remember we would all gather for like school-wide events in the gymnasium like you do. And I would like get my little cult together and I'd be like, who knows pi? We don't have our calculators out. Like like somebody would check the other one using pi. Good old days. <laughs> Glad to know you got your start as a cult leader so early. All I right. Mean, and to go with our pie, uh, what's our drink of the week? So Emily gave me the opportunity to bring something back that um, I haven't made for the show since the very first episode back in season one. Um, this is my little Cosmo recipe. Um, if you go back and listen to the first episode, you'll even learn basically what the recipe is, or at least what its ingredients are. But this very simple three-ingredient drink, uh, everybody I've ever given it to has told me that it tastes fantastic, uh, and you really wouldn't know that there's alcohol in it, which I, I think stays true tonight. Uh, I'll, I'll await Emily's opinion on that one. Dangerously true yeah. tonight. All right, and our drinking games. Uh, so we're going to take a drink every time we name drop. Um, I think that's probably enough of a drinking game, given our propensity to um, do that, and given my topic... Which is literally, um, it's it's about self-acceptance, but in sort of a new thing for this show, uh, I have this fairly long passage, which I'm going to read, and we're going to do a close reading of that passage um, for our topic today. Well, to be fair, it's not entirely unorthodox. I remember there was an episode where we did a fairly close reading of the... Uh, Star Trek? The Star Trek yes. quote. Okay, you're <laughs> right. The one about truth. Truth. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, I'm down for it, man. I yeah. think these are fun episodes. Guys, my English degree is useful. My <laughs> English is... minor that I accidentally got is useful. <laughs> so here's the thing. So so one of the things that Doug and I have talked about is the fact that like in 10 years, I'm hopeful that I can continue listening back on our podcast as like, oh, 
my old friends, like here's hours of conversations with my old friends that I can look back on and remember. And I want to take the the listener and me in the future back in time. Emily, are you taking notes for this episode? Because <laughs> I, I notice. This wow. Is, yeah, this is my notebook that I take notes about everything. And if we're going to do a close reading of the passage, I don't want to miss anything. That's fair. You are I, absolutely licensed to do that. I mean, considering we are doing a close reading, I feel like you're going to be the authority on this now. So <laughs> I am an Alamo Drafthouse loyalist. And one of my favorite things about Alamo Drafthouse is that there's a light underneath your table. Which most people, sane people, use to look at their menus, but I use to take notes on the movies I'm watching. Wow. <laughs> it's a problem. That's awesome, is, though. No, that's a cool. fantastic movie critic, that's by the cool, way. That's cool, though. Uh, no, that's great because you – no, that's awesome. I, I totally endorse yeah. that. I feel so affirmed already. This is going to be a great time. Yeah, all right. So – This is a room full of ENFPs on the Myers-Briggs test, by the way. Yeah, and I'm going to read a quote from another ENFP. Really? Um, this would be Mr. Alan Watts, ah. um, who's a who was a very famous. Um, Wait, sort you of, know that he's an ENFP? Oh, that's a name. Yeah, well, yeah, that is a name. That is a name. Um, but after we drink, can you yeah. tell? Do you know that he's ENFP? Um, I've looked it up. It's a good guess. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and he, so this is actually quoteception a bit. Um, and if we had a soundboard, I'd play the noise at the right time. Um, because he is going to introduce. A uh, quote from Carl Jung, uh, which yes. is another drink. Ah, uh, yes. Carl Jung. Names on names. Yeah, who was the originator of uh, the thinking behind the Myers-Briggs test. Really? Yeah. So Myers-Briggs developed Jung's psychoanalysis into the Myers-Briggs Jungian test. Jungian psychoanalysis? Yes. Yep. Um, and I'm going to introduce Alan Watts, and then he's going to introduce Carl Jung. Um, at this point, we've already said these people, so I don't think that merits an extra drink. Yeah, just a first-time name drop. Yeah. Um, so about Alan Watts, uh, I watched her last night because he has a cameo, which is funny because he died in, uh, 1970, but the cameo is that, um, he was an AI project designed to recreate him. Ah. Uh, and he has line, like speaking lines, and I thought the the voice they got was pretty close. So it was... who was Alan Watts? I never. Yeah, heard Alan this. Watts was a pop culture phenomenon. He was, um, he was a religious, uh, sort of comparative philosopher on religion. Hmm. Uh, he was, he had a lot of, um, he he was born in England. He had a lot of, um religious input from just a general interest in Buddhism, but also uh, his mother's side of the family were very devout Christians. So he went to um, a Christian boarding school and he became a, um, he, he went to a theological school on Christianity. He, uh, he actually was, I think, a minister for about five years. Um, and he tried in his own way to sort of blend uh, elements of Eastern and Western religious thought and philosophy together. And, um, you know, like he he was very quick not to fetishize like Eastern philosophy like a lot of people do. But he was he sought a way for a lot of to cure some of the Western ails with Eastern philosophy. And he also thought that there were probably some Eastern ailments that could be solved through Western philosophy. 
Um, he's he gave a lot of lectures, um, which are generally available on YouTube, or you could actually buy them. Uh, and his son makes money off of that, <laughs> so um, he's still providing for his family. His son's Reggie Watts, right? <laughs> Uh, Reggie Watts is a fan of Alan Watts. Reggie Watts. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, he does an Alan Watts impression in one of his TED Talks, if I recall. Oh, Reggie Watts is a name. Oh, that is a name. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, so we tried at one point having a gavel. Mm. Very. Well, what what, what was wrong with the gavel? Um, The gavel was a good idea. We just stopped doing it. Yeah, we just, it was hard to keep up with. Where is it? It's right there. Yeah. It's been there? Yeah. Emily, do you want to be the uh, gavel? Because Emily's doing a good job keeping up with the rule. Yeah, so... Where just, should I gavel? Um. So what I was doing... There we go. That's yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, so there's okay. the gavel spot. That sounds a lot more appropriate than the yeah. previous, like, earth-shattering thud. Yeah, that was the, the problem. So I was introduced to Alan Watts in um, the summer between my junior and senior years in undergrad, which I credit... And I, I really credit him for um, for developing me in a way that I could impress my English professor um, by making me more sort of okay with myself and therefore able to emphasize with others. And that's generally the topic of today's episode in a way. So I'm going to go into his into this passage, um, which is going to take about seven minutes. Doug, how many podcast? Oh, sorry, how many laptops do you own? Just two. One's Just for two? class. One's for pleasure. Okay. Just two. Doug is currently using two laptops. Yeah. Uh, my laptop wouldn't update before our first ever law school final, and I was freaking oh, no. out. And mm. Vanessa Korsh, who sat next to me, said, "Oh, Name it's drop. no problem. Name drop. Nope. Oh, yeah. Hey. And she pulled out a second laptop. And it's to this day the most amazing thing I've ever seen. That's actually hilarious. Yeah, she gave me a second laptop. I had that happen to me, but Vanessa wasn't in that class, so I just had to write. I delayed was... a I delayed our advanced criminal defense uh, final by about twenty minutes because I managed to screw up uh, exam four. So <laughs> so so entire exam four is the software we use to take our exams on, and, and I fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tech services had to come by. It was impressive. Like, you need to restart your computer, sir. Yeah. yeah. And for that, I thank you. Yeah. All right. Let's but Bridget, do this. Ah, name drop. Bridget oh, was fucking gosh. giving me the most nasty eyes from across the room. She, I know she was kidding because I laughed and she started laughing too, but she just yeah. gave me this look like, what the fuck, Chris? <laughs> Let me out of here. All right. Let's, uh, let's buckle in and do this. I had a long talk with Jung back in 1958, and I was enormously impressed with a man who was obviously very great, but at the same time with whom everyone could be completely at ease. There are so many great people, great in knowledge or great in what is called holiness, with whom the ordinary individual feels rather embarrassed. He feels inclined to sit at the edge of his chair and to feel immediately judged by this person's wisdom or sanctity. Jung managed to have wisdom, and I think also sanctity, in such a way that whenever people came into his presence, they didn't feel judged. They felt enhanced, encouraged, and invited to share in a common life. There was a sort of twinkle in Jung's eye that gave me the impression that he knew himself to be just as much a villain as everybody else. There's a nice German word, Hintergedanken, which means a thought in the very far, far back of your mind. Jung had a hintergedanken in the back of his mind, which showed, it showed in the twinkle in his eye, 
It showed that he knew and recognized what I sometimes call the element of irreducible rascality in himself. <laughs> and he knew it so strongly and so clearly, and in a way so lovingly, that he would not condemn the same thing in others, and would therefore not be led into those thoughts, feelings, and acts of violence towards others, which are always characteristic of the people who project the devil in themselves upon the outside. Mm. Now this made Jung a very integrated character. In other words, here I have to present a little bit of a complex idea. He was a man who was thoroughly with himself, having seen and accepted his own nature profoundly. He had a kind of unity, an absence of conflict in his own nature, which had to it this additional complication that I find so fascinating. He was the sort of man who could feel anxious and afraid and guilty without being ashamed of feeling this way. In other words, he understood that an integrated person is not a person who has simply eliminated the sense of guilt or the sense of anxiety from his life, who is fearless and wooden and a kind of sage of stone. He is a person who feels all these things, but has no recrimination against himself for feeling them. And this, to my mind, is a profound kind of humor. You know, in humor, there's always a certain element of malice. And there's a very high kind of humor, which is humor at oneself. Real humor is not jokes at the expense of others. It is always jokes at the expense of oneself. And of course, it has an element of malice in it. It has malice towards oneself. The recognition of the fact that behind the social role that you assume, behind all your pretensions to being either a good citizen or a fine scholar or a great scientist or a leading politician or a physician or a law student or whatever you happen to be. Is that really the line? That was in brackets. Okay. <laughs> that behind this facade... There's a certain element of the unreconstructed bum, not as something to be condemned and wailed over, but as something to be recognized as contributive to one's greatness and to one's positive aspect, in the same way that manure is contributive to the perfume of the rose. Jung saw this and Jung accepted this, and I want to read a passage from one of his lectures, which I think is one of the greatest things he ever wrote, and which has been a very marvelous thing for me. It was in a lecture delivered to a group of clergy in Switzerland a considerable number of years ago, and he writes as follows. People forget that even doctors have moral scruples, and that, even and that certain patients' confessions are hard even for a doctor to swallow. Yet the patient does not feel himself accepted unless the very worst of him is accepted too. No one can bring this about by mere words. It comes only through reflection and through the doctor's attitude towards himself and his own dark side. If the doctor wants to guide another, or even accompany him a step of the way, he must feel with that person's psyche. He never feels it when he passes judgment. Whether he puts his judgments into words or keeps them to himself makes not the slightest difference. To take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also of no use, but estranges him as much as condemnation. Feeling comes through, only through, unprejudiced objectivity. This sounds almost like a scientific precept, and it could be confused with a purely intellectual, abstract attitude of mind. But what I mean is something quite different. It is a human quality, a kind of deep respect for the facts, for the man who suffers from them, and for the riddle of such a man's life. The truly religious person has such an attitude, he knows that God has brought all sort of strange and inconceivable things to pass, and seeks in the most curious ways to enter a man's heart. 
He therefore senses in everything the unseen presence of the divine will. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean by unprejudiced objectivity. It is a moral achievement on the part of the doctor who ought not let himself be repelled by sickness and corruption. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. And I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not in the least mean to say that we must never pass judgment when we desire to help and improve. But if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is. And he can do this in reality only when he has already seen and accepted himself as he is. Perhaps this sounds very simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so, acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All of these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I stand, that I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved, what then? Then as a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed, and there is no more talk of love and long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide him from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves, and had it been God himself who drew near us in this despicable form, we should have denied him a thousand times before a single rooster had crowed. Mm. So that is the quote. Is that it? Yes. All right. Well, I'll tell you my, my first hot take on that. Go for it before we delve into close reading. Yeah. So my immediate reaction is that whatever we approach from that passage is going to be very ephemeral in application because – the issue I'm immediately seeing is recognition of a sort of commonality of humanity with personal flaws, uh, personal struggles, and the, the conditions that impress upon human life in all its forms. And just looking at everything and saying there's a bit of that that lives in me has virtually no impact on the decisions people are going to make with respect to each other are you sure about that i am actually i strongly disagree and, yeah, and i'm too. gonna and i'm gonna you know and, and i'm gonna argue this over the course and i always allow right. myself well, to have my I'm mind glad. be changed but no hang on let me finish. no i'm glad we can disagree so, because but, that'll yeah. make the podcast more yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but but hang on i mean ultimately like i'm gonna be willing to have my mind changed absolutely but my first impression is basically you know if if i were to be it almost strikes me right yeah, yeah, we're pre-law, you know, we're 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 pre-lawyers. We're, you know. But I'm thinking about, you know, I have this joke that I made with Doug on many an occasion that in constitutional law. Sorry, you make jokes? I I do. And you laugh often at them. So um just now, for instance. And that wasn't even so I made this joke with many people, including Doug, that that within constitutional law, a court could literally just write we are not going to merely do this and then literally with every other sentence of the entire 
decision. Do that thing that they say they're not merely. Sorry, going I to didn't do. realize oh, you yeah. were joking. I thought like. Well, the problem with the joke is that it's it it's seems true. accurate, it's right? Too yeah. real. Yeah, and so there's, there's my a, sorry. My my issue, it. my issue generally, and you guys obviously going to have an hour to respond, but each. Well, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, it seems to me that I'm imagining myself as a judge judging a person for doing some crime. Mm-hmm. I could easily make my first paragraph, we must all recognize that every harm exists in ourselves and humanity is a shared condition whereby all of us must accept that within every quote-unquote sinner or criminal exist the very same things that make each of us ourselves. And then go on with the rest of the opinion to say, nonetheless, etc., you are different enough from me that I will not see that. Or even, because I understand and recognize so thoroughly the evil that lives within you because it lives within me, I will take the following strict measures to restrict it because I understand better than anyone because I am myself you know, subject to the same kind of wills and whims that it needs to be extricated from society. That's a very Clarence Thomas argument. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, yeah. But that's just my immediate and reaction. It but... reminds me of the part where he talks about projecting the devil. Alan Watts talks about projecting the devil in themselves upon the outside. Well, mm-hmm. perhaps, perhaps. But I think there's also a very real strand no. within the entire passage with regard to the notion of being so comfortable with your own uh, darkness, shall we call it, that you are totally okay with it and and move on with it. In the same sort of regard, it seems that your understanding and comfort with it would also become a sort of confidence in how to deal with it, not only within yourself, but maybe as to others. But please, right. I mean, yeah. let us begin em- the conversation. Emily, what's your hot take? Uh, so the one of the first things I wrote down, because like when I, when I do a close reading, my first thing is like, okay, anything that I can take literally out of this, I'm going to look at that first because that's easiest for me to like latch on to. Um, and in my race and politics class with Dr. Moore, who's great, and we have to drink now. Ooh, boy. In race and politics with Dr. Moore, we have talked about, or we read a book called the other Westmore, no relation, by the author Westmore. I'll drink in a minute. Uh, who said, or who tells? It's just a man named Westmore who grew up around Baltimore. Who, at the same time as the newspaper announced he got the Rhodes Scholarship, the newspaper announced that a man his age named Westmore was. Uh, they had a warrant out for his arrest, <laughs> and so he takes the two Westmores and just looks at their paths while he's working for uh the author Westmore is working for Condoleezza Rice the other Westmore is in jail for the rest of his life um because he was in a robbery that and they killed a man uh, as part of the robbery a police officer um and one of and the author Westmore had a father and they're they're both black the author Westmore had a father had a mother his father was a radio DJ highly respected man in town cool. uh yeah his father went to the hospital, couldn't breathe, uh, was having a hard time. His throat was closing up. The mother, uh, Westmore's mother was like, do something, do something. And the doctor said, you think he's just faking? I think he's just faking. Is he, is he on drugs? And he's just, yeah, because the doctors and they gave him something to numb his throat. So when Westmore's father got home, he couldn't feel his throat closing up and he suffocated. 
um, and he died hours after they, he had been discharged from the hospital with nothing to be done. And this is a real problem in medicine. Uh, women often have a really hard time getting diagnosed as well. Um, and I think literally when he was talking about the doctor has to see something in himself to diagnose, I think that's, uh, there's an actual problem with discrimination in medicine because we're unable, because doctors or, I mean, people are unable to see themselves in other people. They just see what's different. And I think that that is, I think that's a, a one very literal uh, application of it, which differs in the way that it's not necessarily seeing just the darkness in other people, right? It's also seeing the light in other people. And it's also seeing what's the same about you in positive ways. Hmm. That was my first thought. Interesting. All right. So I, I have one response to that, and it's based on that uh, seeing the devil in yourself and others mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, well, projecting rather. Right, right. I, I'm sorry. I, I mean projecting the devil onto others. Um, <laughs> Room of ENFPs projecting onto yeah. others. <laughs> so I have this, I, I have this running theory that I shared with a couple of people. Um, this is one of my lesser known running theories, but I share Ooh. most of them with people. So Hot take. I have this theory that fathers who have daughters restrict their daughter's conduct in proportion to how poorly they treated women growing up. I've heard this. Yeah. Mm. So Yeah, I remember when you told me this. Right. So I I've so often, you know, known a lot of girls in high school and, you know, that's sort of the last time period where whereby a father can be controlling the conduct, you know, blah blah blah. We to, get it, Chris. Extent, you know a lot of girls. Listen, <laughs> I am not suggesting that. Um, though all the ones I know are wonderful. Um, what I'm suggesting is that, you know, it seems to me every time that I would really get to know somebody, whatever conduct, you know, that they'd be frustrated, their dad like told them they couldn't do this or couldn't do that, whatever. It always seemed like it would be directly proportional to that father's personal experience with mistreating uh, girls when they were young. So the immediate reaction I have is that it strikes me that in many cases, your um, ignorance of darkness in another can often be more of a boon to your respect for the person than it being negative to your interaction with them, such that, you know, your ability to imagine the darkness in another person actually serves to benefit your ability to respect them as a person. I, I agree with everything you said, um, to a certain degrees, uh, All right. but yeah, but, um, <laughs> a certain I, degree, yeah, uh, potentially including zero. <laughs> I, I agree with everything everyone says to a certain degree. Right. Yeah. Some of it is 0%. Some of so it is thank you. Um, because I love pedantry to a certain degree. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> ah. uh, anyways, I just, I feel like it's missing, or not not strictly missing. Um, it's, it's going off on a limb that isn't quite in this tree. Uh, that is to say, there's, there's, there's a point to this passage. Um, it's, I... Well, okay, maybe it's not a limb that's not on this tree, uh, come to think of it. But it it's about um, 
you can't uh you can't affect change on someone unless you accept them as they are mm-hmm. rather than sure and there's there's a certain point to everything you've said so far about how like this is ephemeral and it works when you have a distance between you and the person um and then when you actually need to uh be a doctor to someone and and he uses doctor but he doesn't strictly mean doctor right. it's metaphorical and also he's talking to clergy and patient is a word that describes actually both people seeking a doctor and people seeking the clergy yeah uh, in fact when you're giving a confession the technical word for you is also a patient so while we're talking about confession um ter- terrible off topic thing but i read like two days ago um that uh what is it what's what's the thing you say when you go into confessional um forgive me, forgive me father yeah forgive sin. yeah could is like this was in a reddit thread titled what's what are truths that people don't want to accept and this one was that um forgive me father for i have sinned is the same as um sorry daddy i've been bad woof i do not want to accept that <laughs> yeah so uh I mean, it's fine. The yeah. only issue is that people like. I mean, it's a cheap. It's a cheap parlor trick. With oh yeah, it's a, it's a joke. All, no, 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 absolutely. But yeah, the issue is it's a cheap parlor trick of linguistics because yeah. all it is is let S- me rephrase yeah. using euphemistic yeah. uh, stand-ins that also have attached to them kinky meaning. Isn't yeah. it great how Any you can window. take the exact same words and just change them a little bit and have a completely different meaning in our profession oh uh, we i think we survived by job that. security yeah uh so you said doug you said um you can't accept or you can't, affect, you can't change. affect change until you accept someone as they are yes and the passage kind of i feel like it also says you can't accept someone as they are until you accept yourself as you are yes and that's actually the first thing i want to do in the close reading mm-hmm. is. I'm curious cuz that that's that's a very solid like argument to make is that you can't accept someone else until you accept yourself. And I'm not too sure about that. Well, at least it's clear. It's a Yeah, clear but argument. it's right, it's a very clear argument and I'd like to see um do y'all agree with that or do you think it's possible to accept someone else without accepting yourself? Uh yeah, to I a do. certain degree. <laughs> I my gut reaction to that, like my knee jerk is it's way easier for me to accept others than it is for me to accept myself. But I am much harder on myself than I am on others generally. Same. I mean, I think that might actually be an ENF. I thing, yeah. So you know, um, to be honest, because I I feel that too. Yeah. So yeah. Professor um, Sless drank. Um, uh, Emily, could you pass me the picture because I'm gonna need some additional. They're making you do so much. I can and I will. I'm in the most advantage advantageous position. True that. To do so much. Yeah. Um, Plus, I chose to take notes, so y'all didn't make me do that. <laughs> yeah, so... Oh. Uh, professor oh. Schles, who's the negotiations professor, and also the mediations professor, and I feel like um, those are two topics where this passage is very pertinent, is in negotiation and mediation, Total. especially mediation. Um, he has this thing where he has... He calls everyone into his office for... a. Um, mandatory office hour not to talk about the class but to get to know each one of us individually that's nice and 
like about 15 minutes into our conversation, he tells me, Doug, you're too hard on yourself. At And since then, I've been hard on myself for being hard on myself. Yes. Yeah. Have you been told that by a professor? I have been told that by a professor. Um, yes. And also, I was thinking about this. Uh, so, trial masters, a uh, summer class that I took one all year, fabulous class. Uh, he also pulled everyone into his room, uh, his, his office, before the class began. And he talked to everybody. And he has this questionnaire that everyone has to fill out before he goes into his office. And the, the questionnaire is like, you know, what, are, you know, it, it's all about yourself. It's all mm-hmm. about like, well, what's, you know, how would you define this about yourself? How would you define that about yourself? And I fill these things out with like multiple paragraphs, like pages of answers to stuff. And he was like, do you have any experience with therapy? And I was like, to be honest, no. And he was like, well, you have a really, you, you, you have a very practiced view of yourself. Mm, that's and a I good was compliment. Like, and I was like, you know, I think about the way I think a lot. <laughs> like an extraordinary amount of time is spent thinking about thinking. Is it an ENFP thing to go meta automatically? Yes, I think I, it is. Yeah. I we think go meta a lot on this. I think it's between the N and the P. That's one of, one of my favorite things about community is that Abed is automatically meta. He is, oh, yeah. I guess that's a name drop. Yeah, Ooh. absolutely. Also, the too. professor, did you name drop your crim professor not crim it, it's trial masters you should because uh, i'm already holding my drink and you I know, the, just... the sad thing is i can't remember anymore oh you know what i can look it up i mean but it'll take Ooh, a you minute. should make up a whimsical name for him oh yeah. but that would be to me doing a little bit of a disservice <laughs> that's um, fair <laughs> yeah so while he's looking that up um yes, sir emily you were talking about whether you believed um the statement so I think I'm I'm really interested in and I'm gonna have to reread this passage after tonight. I can send um, it to you. Yeah. I'm really interested in the I could actually send you the lecture and it's Alan Watts speaking and he's far better at uh lecturing than I am. And then I'll pair it with her and it'll be like a great double feature <laughs> of a thing I will like and a thing I already really like. Um I'm interested in the connection between loving yourself and loving others because this is uh i remember sitting in church and somebody said love your neighbor as yourself and i was like oh that means i have to love myself that's gonna be like that's like a huge hurdle to get over but i'm interested in the connection between loving others as yourself and love and the form of humor that he talks about humor at the expense of self rather than the expense of others um, because I, I have thought about this a lot. I worked at a summer camp for five summers and three of those, I was in charge of the skits and the games and the jokes. And I was really wary of, I always wanted to know why we were laughing. I didn't, somebody, somebody wanted to do a skit that was like a workout class, but of like different worship styles, like raise your hands in the air. And like, uh, yeah, I've thought mass is kind of like a workout. Yeah, exactly. And it's a funny skit and somebody does it online, which was part of the reason I didn't want to do that exactly. Um, but I was <laughs> concerned because I didn't want people to be in worship thinking about the skit. 
Like I didn't want people to be self-conscious about the way they were like expressing their worship. Interesting. I didn't want people to be like raising their hands and then everyone behind would be like, oh, it's just like the move that Emily did on stage in a like onesie, like a workout outfit earlier. Um, so we changed it and it was even funnier because gifted, um, and humble, but, (laughs) but literally that's one of the moves. Um, but I never want to make a joke at someone else's expense if I can make a joke at my own expense instead. Mm. Um, and part of that is the, like the recognizing the darkness in yourself and being able to joke about it and wanting other people to know that you have a darkness so that they feel good showing you yeah. what is what they want to be vulnerable about too. So the overall um topic of the lecture Watts gives, because this is it's like an hour long or so. Um, it isn't specifically on self acceptance, but it's it's about polarity and, mm. and unity, um, in that conflict. So he he begins um framing or he has this quote in it. He also had that quote that I brought up uh, last week with Josh. The um, just as it's the silence in the prayer, right? Yeah, yeah. Thomas Aquinas. Wait, one more time. Yeah. So Thomas Aquinas has said, um, "Oh, just as it's the silent pause that gives sweetness to the prayer, um, it's evil that allows recognition of good." Yeah. Shadow proves the sunshine. We also wait. Whoa, whoa, and that's two that drinks. From? Where's that from? <laughs> yes, because we mentioned Josh. No, yeah, but where, where's Josh that from? That is from a Switchfoot song because I Ooh. was raised a Christian That's who beautiful. wanted to listen Hang to Hang on, s- what? Can you say it again? The Shadow Proves the Sunshine. The shadow Proves the Sunshine. Isn't that nice? Aw. That's so irreducibly nice. I have found that to be very true in law school. Yeah, so um, he, he talks about how... Um, how we can have rage and we can have a justified rage against um, illness in our system. But if we require as, and this is quoted as well as I can, if we require as justification for our um, rage, an absolute division in the universe between good and evil, we have a schizophrenic universe. I love yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree. This and is, yes. Yeah, and and one that just simply like it it's divided against itself. Um yeah. in that way and I think it's interesting that you mentioned um it, you said that he talks about loving uh the bad parts inside you as well as the good, but he he does he says accepting rather than loving. Yeah. Um and I'm wondering if there's really a difference. So, before we get there, let me just respond briefly to Emily's point. Um, first thing, by the way, it's Professor uh, Mark Perlmutter. Hey. Um, yeah. It's a great name, name. That's much more whimsical than anything I would have come up with. So check this out. He was a trial lawyer for decades and then decided to become a, cu- a couple's counselor. Aw. Yeah. Wow. My dad's a couple's right? counselor. Maybe he'll decide yeah. to become a trial lawyer. I had my favorite professor in undergrad was uh, Father Pagliari. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a Catholic university. Oh. Uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic, and the university didn't change that in any way, but um, it, it let me learn a lot about Catholicism and Christianity. Uh, anyways, he was also, he was a divorce counselor, actually, and he taught a class on Christian marriage, um, which was a very interesting class. Yeah. Hmm. So my thought is that 
if there was one moment during the passage where I felt like that's really a cheap shot, it was having to do with humor. Um, because I think that we've sort of talked about it either on this show or probably We had an episode with Zach that was all about humor. In fact, that's true, but I think that we never really brought this particular point up. And that is the realization that self-deprecating humor is superior to other deprecating humor is a matter of marketing more than anything else, to be perfectly mm -hmm. honest, because your your audience is going to be maximized by making fun of only yourself. I don't think that there's some higher principle, some kind of like perfection to achieving self-deprecating humor in some, you know, greater metaphysical sense. I think that, to be honest, Alan Watts is just he he's sacredizing or or I don't know how to put that. He's making sacred something that is just sort of a natural byproduct of human interaction, which is if you're if somebody's making jokes, I'd really prefer they're not making fun of me because it's tough to be made fun of. It, it's a hard thing. Yeah. And, you know, if you're thinking to yourself, how do I maximize my audience? And you realize, well, anybody that I make fun of is going to kind of feel like, oh, like that's that's kind of tough. I think you sort of avoid that. And I think that, you know, to be honest, that that humor portion of Alan Watts's uh, passage, I think is a cheap shot. I don't think that he's really recognizing so, a higher principle. I think he's just putting way too much on this pedestal, the notion that it is really just dependent upon basic human instinct. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Emily. Uh, did you have you did you guys talk about the concept of punching up on your on the comedians episode? What's that mean? Uh, so there's this idea that. In comedy, you should only punch up, right? That you don't want to... Community had very few viewers over the course of its lifetime. I was one of them forever. But Glee was this, like, huge phenomenon. So Community can do an episode making fun of Glee. But Glee can't do an episode making fun of Community. I see. Power because dynamics. You, yeah, because you want to punch the people above you and not the people below which is why so it is do you you don't make jokes about disadvantaged communities mm -hmm. it, you know that's one of the like fundamental reasons why it's offensive people it's this concept of kicking a man while he's down and i think that if you are a comedian on a stage telling jokes punching yourself is sort of a form of punching up to the audience because you are in a position of entertaining them you are braver than they are because you're on stage and they're not and you are able to, like, you're able to handle your own joke. Right. Um, which is why, like, I think heckling, like, people who punch back at hecklers are often yeah. poorly received because the audience is like, that's one of us. But if you can make the audience feel like they're with you. Interesting. Uh, John Mulaney, name drop. Hey, um, also, please. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, John Mulaney is a comedian I really like, and a couple of us went to see him last year. And somebody left to go to the bathroom 
And John Mulaney was like, okay, that guy's gone. When he comes back, I'm going to say Chicago and we're going to, or I'm going to say, you know what they say about Chicago? And you're all going to say, they all love milkshakes. And this guy's going to have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and so this guy comes back in and we're all like looking at each other and looking at John Mulaney because now we all have a secret inside joke. And John Mulaney goes, you know what they say about Chicago? And everybody goes, they all love milkshakes. And this guy's like, huh? Yeah. And it was like John Mulaney like brought us up. So we were like kind of punching down, but we were all punching down together. And that guy didn't know he was right. down. So Chris well, and I saw John Mulaney yeah, uh, last semester. We did. Oh, God, isn't he the best? And who was, do you remember who is his, uh, I didn't like his, um, opener. Max. Uh, it was for the kid gorgeous. Yeah. We saw him too. Max. I don't remember. He was all right, but like. But here, and actually, you know, there's two things I would like to say is that on the one hand. It's not quite a name drop because we can't get the name out. (laughs) I'm very, you know, I'm glad that we're talking about this because, you know, one thing that Max and his uh, opener did was make sure that it was all punch ups, right? Like, they would make fun of, I mean, you know, realistically, most of the butt of the jokes were white men yeah um and you know easy right Mm -hmm. so and and then you know you also you know your story kind of indicates also i i think to me and you know there's no disrespect here at all but absolutely there's a there's a facet to that that is punching down it's the notion of we are all we and then there's the other we've identified an other and now we're going to make fun of the other yeah um so i think that those you know that story that you told specifically kind of has a little bit of commentary on the idea of, I think realistically, I mean, there's nothing particularly special. There's nothing more perfect or, or greater about self-deprecating humor. It's just that it has a better market. And, so, and I think mm-hmm. that Alan Watts, you know, talking about that particular example, I'm not saying his argument's wrong, but I'm saying that that example is a bit of a, cheap shot because i i don't either he understands what's going on and is just not being completely honest about it which i don't think is true or he doesn't really understand that you know the reason for that particular truth about humor is not some greater metaphysical truth but rather it's just better marketing so i'm going to give my counterpoint sure um now because i i do have a specific counterpoint uh, first is that the, and this is a very close reading and I'm benefited by having the, the quote in front of me while neither of you do. Yeah. Um, he says there's a very high kind of humor, which is humor at oneself, which is to say, he's not saying it's the highest, but he's saying it's, it's an elevated sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I think it's a more moral sense of humor because if you're punching at yourself, it's consensual. Mm, that's good. Well, well, sure. But again, I'm not suggesting that. You so know, well, high in high in morality, at least. Like, could you? Because we all know the highest form of humor is dog videos on the internet. Yes, um, cat videos on the internet. Ooh, mm. man, we did strong again. division. Sorry, kids. Yeah, I'm so a cat guy. well, here's the thing. Like for me, no. I mean, that's not good enough. I mean, he can't just sit there and say it's not perfect, but it's better. I, I think that the betterness is an entirely a market force, and I don't think that's enough. 
Like you don't just get to look at the market so, of human behavior and say that's morality. I don't think so. I yeah, but especially I think, if I, it's just, I don't think it's just a market force because I think there is something to say that if you're if you're picking a target and that target has consented to being the butt of a joke, um, which you can do if you have the target for yourself, or you can say like if you're going if you're a comedian and you're going to make fun of your girlfriend, maybe talk to her about it before you get uh, on it. And hey, yeah, would you yeah. be all right if you're the butt of some jokes like well, i the think thing. there's i think there's something to say about that being more ethical than just pointing out and i have i i feel like bringing experience into this is kind of um is kind of tr like trying to make a point but i've i've done stand-up comedy i've made people the butt of jokes before um the best laughs i ever received was joking about a professor in the school that no one liked and he never knew about it so in some way mm. i'm a hypocrite um well that's fine yeah. as i've said before the show starts and this might be a, a future episode hypocrisy is actually the only way to live in this world but <laughs> in any event i mean here's the thing when i'm talking about ethics and ethical better i'm gonna i'm trying to restrict it within the bounds of the statement you right. presented because it has a lot to say about ethics right mm -hmm. and i think even if you say to yourself i'm going to truly love myself for my flaws and well, everybody else for well, again, hang on well hang on well again it's love versus accept fine i'm going to accept myself for my flaws and accept everyone else for their flaws. yeah okay even living in that world i'm not sure how it's better to make because if you truly do accept everyone's flaws including yourself for what it is and truly respond to that in a human, empathetical way. I'm not sure how it's better that you make fun of yourself than you make fun of someone else. Because realistically, if you live in a world where you truly respect, understand, and accept everyone's flaws as if they were your own, then why wouldn't you treat everybody else in a humor context the way you treat yourself? Did, mm. What's the problem with you making fun of someone saying, look at this guy over here. I mean, come yeah. on, theft, right? Well, you know, everyone understands. Well, of course, everybody has that sort of theft impulse. And I'm just using an example, yeah. obviously, but yeah. that everyone understands that theft concept within themselves. And we're all in this. I mean, we're all together on this. So we can laugh openly. But, I so, mean, you see how that passage kind of rejects its own uh premises but doug's no. consent argument is totally missing yeah. from your making fun of somebody else argument right like if you're like huh theft this is why it's like not cool to make jokes about winona ryder name drop uh like shoplifting in the 90s because winona well she can do no harm so yeah. that's not first even, of all joe march forever that's not even theft. Um, yeah, but yeah, legally, many people who don't go to law school don't know this, but legally, Winona Ryder can do no wrong. Uh, that's just the thing you <laughs> learn on day one. She's actually the sovereign, believe it or not. But it's like not cool to make jokes about that because Winona Ryder, it, it, but as soon as she makes a joke about it, it's funny. And then if if she's on like Jimmy Kimmel or whatever, and Jimmy Kimmel makes a joke back at her after she has made a joke, then there's that consent element, right? Okay. I mean, I, what's interesting is, so, I think that's a hang great on, if point. I can go and, real quick. Um, did either of you see that episode of SpongeBob where SpongeBob yes. is the stand-up so, comedian? I wanted to talk and about he, this. He makes, <laughs> he makes jokes about specifically Sandy. about one, yeah, Sandy. And it becomes... Her teeth are so long, Texas, Texas, right, Texas, Texas. It becomes morally, um, like the, the point of the episode 
at the end, like, the moral lesson is that despite the squirrel jokes being popular, um, eventually just targeting one person is bad. So at the end, what SpongeBob does is he targets everyone in the audience. He makes right. jokes about crabs being selfish. He makes jokes about sponges being spineless. He makes jokes about starfish being stupid. He makes but jokes about fish smelling bad. To begin oh. that, he, and, and yes, Emily, uh, I, briefly, you're right. Uh, because SpongeBob and Sandy. And Krusty Krabs. Oh, mm. wow. I didn't mention those they characters. Just, you did, though. Oh. We'll take a half sip for each of those. So, um... What's interesting is he starts – so remember, A, the reason that he stops doing that with Sandy is because Sandy literally beats the shit out of him. <laughs> Two. Literally? I think literally. Oh, wow. Two, he goes from – his opening thing, right, is, well, you know about those squirrels. And then his next line is about himself. And then he broadens it to everybody else. Right. So it's kind of interesting in that regard. Um, I And real quick, I think what he is doing when he makes those jokes and suddenly do starts doing it about everyone else is he brings everyone in touch with their um, unreconstructed bum. Yeah. Yeah. I really uh, liked that phrase, by the true. way. Yeah. I, A great I, band name. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. TM, no, but, TM, but, TM. but here's the thing. And, and in response to Emily's very good point about, you know, consent as a metric of ethics. Yes. And there are many metrics of ethics, I think, that could be brought up. But mm -hmm. within the context of the passage, what's interesting is if you just take it on its face and you don't add a lot to it, what you see instead of a focus on the consensual nature of human interaction is instead the sort of unity of the human condition and a sort of silver rule, I think it's what it's called, the silver rule of conduct, which is that which has been done unto me, I can do unto others. This, this notion that, you know, if I can recognize and accept within myself things – and also recognize and accept that those same things apply as to others. Then I can start to conduct myself in a way that is universally uh, valid, in a sense. So, And by that metric, it seems that at least in a humor context, that sort of total recognition, acceptance, and understanding sort of exists to the exclusion of any need for what we would call, you know, person-to-person -person consent of commentary and... Mocking. <laughs> mocking, because instead you basically say, well, listen, we're all the same. I mean, what's your, you know, what is your right to tell me? Because I have reached true, you know, Nirvana-style understanding. So what's your deal? You know, because yeah. at a certain point me having so fully recognized actually exists to the exclusion of your ability to say, well, I don't want to be recognized in that way. So it's kind of like, weird. You know? I'd like yeah. to move forward because sure. I have this burning question, actually. Um, when, I was, when I was prepping this episode by editing a transcript of most of this and having to transcript some of it by putting Alan Watts in at 0.25 speed on YouTube, which was a really <laughs> fun experience. Um I, I did put in some things in brackets. Um, the joke about being a law student was actually on the cuff, but uh, like as I was speaking it. But I did put some things in brackets, and I did omit a couple things just to make it a bit smoother. There was one thing I wanted to omit, and then 
I had the idea not to do it. And this is specifically uh, towards Emily. So the end of the passage, um, it, it talks about um, we we help others, but we don't extend the same sort of kindness towards ourselves. Um, and and I noticed like you had literal like physical reaction oh, reactions. Yeah. I perked. I perked <laughs> to, up. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, there's, there's a specific line, then as a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed. And I wanted to omit originally the as a rule, because I didn't quite understand it. And I felt like it was a bit disparaging. But then, um, today, as I was cleaning my apartment, I thought, hang on a second, isn't there that passage in Matthew? And I, well, I only know Matthew because of god spells so i should say the uh the book of schwartz uh <laughs> that you, um if my right eye offends me it's better that i pluck it out um or you know mm -hmm. if if your right hand does something bad cut it off uh and in a sense it, it is there is is like is there this rule in christianity that we can forgive others but we can't forgive ourselves in the same way um I think not, hmm, it depends on who you are. I think that... Oh, we did have a drink with Schwartz. Oh, Stephen you're Schwartz, right. The, um, the composer of Godspell. Yes. Um, I only know the book of Schwartz and the book of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, which is the second drink. And oh, yes, that is the second drink. My gavel's over there, but... I think that Christians, in my experience, which, to be fair, is extensive. I have, by all parental accounts, been a Christian for 22 years now. I am 26. I would say I have been a Christian since I was 17 and figured it out for myself. Anyway, um, I would say that Christians tend to one of two extremes, in my experience. Either they are able to forgive themselves entirely, uh, take the... Phil or the Pennsylvania congressman who caused us to have a very exciting special election last night. Uh, it's this guy. Are you who's... intentionally not name dropping? Oh, I can't. I don't know the name of the guy who. Do you left know the, the names, seat. Chris? No. I know well. Connor Lamb and uh, Sacco were Ooh, the two, oh, and what? last night. Um, but the guy whose seat they were running for is a politician who's very pro-life. I assume he's Christian. I do not know this for sure. I will say. Um, but he was a very pro-life Christian on the face of it. Uh, but turns out he was having an extramarital affair with a woman, and he advised her to get an abortion when she got pregnant. So amidst that oh, scandal, yeah. he withdrew. Um, so that guy clearly is able to forgive himself any and all number of things. Um, things that he has not actually asked for forgiveness. And our president, who I will not name drop out of uh, my own personal desire not to right now, because um, sure. I'm having a good time and I don't sure. want to bring him in, uh, sure. has said he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't bring God into it. And it baffles me how the religious, the evangelical sector, of which voted for him in overwhelming numbers, I think it was 81%, is willing to forgive him that and forgive themselves for supporting that. I think you get that kind of Christian a lot. So well, thank God Almighty if that I can, we have a leader who doesn't require forgiveness. Yeah. If God I can loves him. segue then to a different oh, part of the passage. I was just going to say, and real quick, and I think you, you get up. the other kind of Christian who I think, like, I, I go over my faults 
all the time. I know a lot of other Christians who are very like reluctant to even accept forgiveness from God, whose whole thing is forgiveness because it's just like, well, yeah, but what I did was awful and I wouldn't forgive me for that. So how could someone else? Sorry, yeah, those are the so, two polarities, I think. Yeah, as as my segue, there's also a part Jung says um, that he says uh, you can't feel and understand and guide a patient if you don't um, if you pass judgment yeah. on them. But uh, to take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also of no use, but estranges him as much as condemnation. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to talk about this this balancing act then. Mm. Because there's you have to accept that they have a dark side and accept that it's a dark side in my mind, but you can't like pass judgment on it if you want to help them improve. So here's my immediate contrarianism, right? Mm-hmm. You this, this doubt <laughs> please go on. Just poking. Are you sure? I want to. I want to. Oh it. no! I just. I, I want to hear the criticism. I think no. It's oh, it's not at all a criticism. You I, really no, I, misread me. I don't mean to. It's I, your dark no, 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 side, no, no, Chris. Emily. I'm, I'm not suggesting that you were actually about to level light like, personal criticism. I just wanted to hear Great. the joke that you were going to form. The only thing that keeps conversations in- interesting is contrarianism. Okay. Uh, because when people are like, "Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I know, right?" It's such a boring. There's conversation. There's nowhere to go. Literally, and you are one of the people who has the most interesting <laughs> conversations out of everybody I know. Aww. So I think that has to be. Emily. it's true that's why there's a podcast this is literally like this is so enfp it's like no Uh, tell me what you want to criticize i would never criticize no i know but just tell me (laughs) me on the other hand kidding no 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 no, no, no. your contrarianism so my issue here is the balancing act feels ephemeral the the balancing act feels illusory because the issue is as soon as you start talking about well we shouldn't merely agree with them on any on everything merely. slash well we shouldn't merely pass you really judgment should have gone to the i mean i know you couldn't because you were gone but you really should have gone to the um this the a and f show oh, i wish i could have um and Anyways, I'm, also sorry. i'm gonna count merely as a sandy levinson drop that's the drop already yeah because yes, like i wrote lyrics for medley on kanye west mm. um his his song heartless uh. And we talked about Heartless Professors, and I did Johansson. Mm. <laughs> well, and then um, I wrote, and then I wrote lyrics for J1. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> Doug needs more. Doug <laughs> yes, needs more. Um, I guys, I listen. I wrote lyrics listener, for J1 that made fun of Johansson. I have made like really, really strong drink. We're out. <laughs> um, no, there's a little bit left. So I can, yeah. I'll probably have to bring over my my supplies in a couple minutes. Well, um, I imagine we'll finish the podcast before that's a problem. Okay, fair enough. Um, this but, is a hearty um, sip. So, yeah. So merely my issue something. is that all of this is illusory because you can just say, "Well, we're not going to merely agree with the patient on everything, and then just do whatever you want," or you could say, "We're not going to merely." aggressively instruct the patient regardless of their own life choices and and the conditions that impress upon their existence and then do whatever you want. I mean, the the problem is this is more than just a legal or jurisprudential argument. My problem is that you can sit there as a practitioner of any given ideology and just say 
I will now abide by the following. And I'm not sure how it impacts your ultimate decision. So when I picked this quote, um, which was, I mean, originally I had a different topic for Emily, and then I decided to do this one sometime late last semester because I read some Facebook post that Emily had written, Holy and I forgot what it was. Doug. And I'll, I wanted, I'll be back on the podcast for this. Right. Segment. My goodness, that is a long tale of the... And, well, because I wanted, I wanted specifically yeah. to share this passage with Emily. Um, but while I was really thinking like about... It. While I was thinking There's about so it... There's so much good feeling in this room yeah. right now. No, There's so much I'm like... like clutching my heart, which yeah, I do all while the time. I was, while I was thinking about this passage, um, I was also thinking that Chris would probably really dislike this because it is ephemeral. <laughs> And oh, but it's sometimes, not to me. sometimes, and that was kind of the point. Um, <laughs> and sometimes, Chris, I remember thinking when we started this podcast, um, one of the decisions for the for the picture instead of Diogenes in the barrel, um, it was going to be that picture of uh, Socrates pointing up and Ari- or sorry, Plato pointing up and Aristotle, Aristotle pointing, pointing down. down. Yeah, that's two. That's huh? three. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um. Hear ye, hear ye. I just took a very big gulp. I'm sorry because we yeah. were drinking, but that was really funny. And and I've and I've always thought since then, which one of us between the two of us is the one pointing up and the one pointing down? And I realize it depends on the topic. It does. It <laughs> and, really and does. In this topic, oh, yeah. you're definitely the one pointing down, absolutely. and I'm definitely the one pointing up. But it does change. But you are you're absolutely right, Doug. You're and I like right. well, I like that you're able to stand here and be a critic because everything you say is valid and necessary criticism you guys are um, such a nice friend this is literally like the most positive like <laughs> room that it's we've the had pause cast because we've uh, <laughs> we have had episodes the where i feel like, like i should drink for that we have definitely had episodes where it's like no you're wrong <laughs> yeah this is this okay. is the warmest can i hit you with my hot please, take about your hot take please i guess that's what this is yeah um to me it's less about it's more about genuineness, right? It's that if you're going to go in, if you're going to engage with somebody on the level of doctor-patient, of your life is in my hands, which I think, in my opinion, applies also to like a clergy-person relationship, um, It you're going to have to, A, accept them as they are, which I think is the part, is the latter part, the part about, you know, really digging into their darkness and not, you're going to have to accept them as they are genuinely you're going to have to genuinely engage with the problems they're having and you that takes a level because anybody can you know if i'm like dog i'm depressed you can be like oh i'm sorry and that's (laughs) the first level right but okay if i say you know i say like doug i'm depressed and i think that i'm a piece of garbage you are going to have to not just go oh okay or like you're not a piece of garbage because that feels dismissive right to a person who's depressed you're going to have to like Dig into the reasons Engage. why I would be depressed, except that some of those reasons are rooted in a truth, even if it's not the truth that I'm garbage. Right. It's a truth that, like, my brain is releasing chemicals that are telling me I'm garbage, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to dig in. So you can't be dismissive, which is easy, and you can't Accept disagree, it. which is not easy, but also it is harder to play on that person's turf right yeah so this brings me to something that i forgot i wanted to talk about uh which thank you 
Yeah, um, anytime. And also, yeah, anyways, um, I want to talk about empathy in general mm-hmm. because I remember back in, gosh, in undergrad, um, there was some Facebook video that was circling around um, and it was talking about sympathy versus empathy. Yeah. And I'd never considered the two before uh that video so it was it was a formative video for me i love that video is it the little cartoon yes Ah, yeah it was it was a very formative video um it took a it took until i think i started listening to alan watts to really latch on to that do you want to describe it or do you want me to go for it i'd love Uh, for you to describe it from what i remember it's these little cartoons it's something cute like a cow and a deer and sympathy is the deer looking into a hole and the cow is like inside a hole and the deer's like you're it's it's okay you're gonna get out from above from outside of the hole and empathy was the deer climbing down into the hole and saying i'm down here with you and we're gonna get out there's also a really good uh west wing quote about this between uh leo and josh two name drops that i'm proud to have dropped technically Um, if you use a utilitarian version of names it's three okay i'll take Mm. it four Uh, because moose and deer uh, chris just wants to drink that's five um but the man climbs down into the hole and the first man says you idiot why'd you climb down in here with me and the second man says because i've been here before and i know the way out and that's true empathy is actually take risk putting yourself in the sacrificial position of getting into something that could be hard for you because it's hard for the other person and you know the way out or you can help them find a way out sorry that was- yeah no that thank you for describing it because yeah. i had forgotten and i really should revisit <laughs> We um, both should. In yeah. the video. But here I'm I love that that was that. Well point was just anyways, made the, well because sorry. here's my issue. If a version of empathy is to say I know with certainty the way to solve what is going on with you, mm-hmm. all that does on a systemic decision-making basis and i know listen guys i i'm sorry i understand and i know everyone's going to be thinking we're all enfps here it's fine but it's more than that it's that you know my issue is that my contrarianism is all entirely dependent upon the actual pragmatic you know decision-making process Mm -hmm. i get it i know that that's not everything but you know it's not nothing that's, that's where i'm coming from yeah it's where i'm coming from and my issue is that you know, let's imagine again the judge who says, well, let's imagine a judge who is an ex-drug abuser, for example, sure. and just, you know, goes ahead and, all right, let's imagine a judge who's not a drug abuser and who was never a drug abuser and the judge who was once. Okay. Drug who is never, judge who was never a drug abuser says, people who abuse drugs deserve severe punishment because the law says so. And also, I have no sympathy for them. Mm-hmm. Judge who is or was a drug abuser in recovery says, I know that for me, the only way I got out of the situation I was in was severe punishment by society that I excelled in. And I realize now that the only way to get out of it is to have that final ultimatum issued to me by society. Mm. And then they do that. Okay. Well, and again, yeah. you know, we we can talk about right, sort right. of the objectivity of like a proper solution, but it seems to me that Playing the with issue you in this space here. Oh yeah, yeah, but but it seems to me the issue is that whatever decision maker 
and, and I'm not even talking about like realities of governance. People on a day-to-day basis will make decisions based on their personal belief about the proper way to solve things. And even if you tell them that they need to consider the reality of the problem they're trying to solve within themselves, I'm not sure how it actually changes the outcome of their decision-making. So that if all we're adjusting is these sort of, I say it again, ephemeral, illusory things that enter into the decision-making process such that people can better justify the decisions they make rather than actually improve decisions, I'm not sure what we're doing. So, I... sorry. No, I would love to hear Okay, so um, I'm thinking you, you're bringing up one specific um, there. article, and it's about... Like and and it's funny to me because you're talking about a judge whose job is to make judgments. Yeah. And then this passage says, um, to make a judgment is sorry, I'm actually gonna find okay. it. But uh Jung specifically says that if you're a patient and you want to um help someone or even take a step along their way, you have to withhold your judgments. So it it's funny to me that you and your your criticism or your your very valid criticism because we need judges and we need we need judgments um but your your very valid criticism is exactly the sort of thing that this passage isn't addressing um and that is to say like for a functioning society we need laws and therefore we need judgments and it's it's one of the casualties sure even if we try to have a rehabilitative rehabilitative um system which i would prefer if only yeah and and certainly i think a rehabilitative system would be different the way it the way it judges a patient yeah Uh, or certainly we'd we'd call someone a patient rather than an accused person or a a criminal sure Um, my heart longs for the day right i just i just think it's funny that all your and and i just made that connection now i i think that's interesting i'm Sorry, um, Emily. Ahead. Emily definitely had a, a comment to make. Yes, I'm interested in what you term ephemeral or illusory, because to me, personal experience is the least ephemeral judgment motivator. Right? Like it's something that I, I mean, like this may be unique to me as a woman, but like one time a dude put his hand on my back, and like I can still. And I super did not want him to, and I can still like feel that hand where it was, like. And this may be different in y'all's experience, but, like, personal experience is anything but ephemeral or illusory to me. Personal experience is visceral and physical and um, and just sticks in your memory in a way that things like my theology devoid of personal experience. Like, the stuff I learned at youth group that never connected for me. That's very ephemeral and illusory to me. Um so I'm interested in why or what you mean by fem- ephemeral or illusory. Absolutely. So I am not suggesting that the intensity of personal experience is ephemeral or illusory. Right. And I that think... was probably unfair of me to be like, as no. a woman. Blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. no. Okay. And, and in fact, I'm going to respond exactly yes. in, in terms. Um, I'm not suggesting that it, it, its intensity is uh, illusory or, or, or ephemeral. Instead, the direction of the impact seems ephemeral or illusory because it can be turned in any particular direction. Mm -hmm. So I'll share with you an insight that I learned a few years ago from some studies that were done on juries. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Uh, David he, Holmes would is, be thrilled. We were talking about juries. That is right, a name This drop. is, again, on judgment versus... Sure. Versus this is a passage about non-judgment, <laughs> which is to say that, like, we have... And, and I guess I just went over this, but we have a function of society where we require judgment. Right. But put, s- trying to put this passage into terms with that isn't what the passage was made for. Certainly, we've been but I think students that too long. what we've recognized is that it's necessary to put this passage into terms with our overall society if we're going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so this... this well, study- I feel like it's a passage meant for personal relationships specifically. Well, yeah, that's a good every point. person has to make decisions in their life. And yeah. judgments are just decisions writ large. I mean, realistically, unless Alan Watts is just saying, let's live in an anarchy where nobody judges anyone else you or know, has the he, power to. He kind of is. Okay, yeah. well, he fine. also, he he recognizes the fact that society doesn't work that way. Because sure. He, he under, and part of his humor is he understands he's a bit pretentious. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I absolutely yes. love about him. I actually want to talk about the difference between juries and personal, like, judgment. Okay, yeah, and I do like, and I do really like this sure. decision. I just so want let's, to let, let, let's, yeah. let's go here real quick. Terms. So yeah. one thing that was uh, gleaned from studies done about juries in sexual assault cases, mm-hmm. you're, okay, let's talk, you know, this is going to be gross and a little bit, you know. We've been, women have been hearing about it for the last six months. It's fine. Six months. Six months? Yeah, since Harvey Weinstein. That was six months ago, wasn't it? Well, I would say women have been dealing with this. Yeah. Bullshit, right, right, right. The but public we've been, has been talking about it, it in yeah. public for at least six Fair months. Fair enough. Yeah. What's been gleaned about juries is that you might intuitively think that if you were going to accuse a criminal defendant of sexual assault, you might want to fill your jury with women. Just it, that's gross to say, and, it, and it's no, kind no, of, no, it makes but, sense. Oh, but what happened yeah. was people found that you know, at least in in America, juries have this very profound sense of free will about their decision making, and that yeah. might be weird to say, but here's the way it gets applied: when women are in a jury, they tend to attribute by a sympathetic sense, um, decision-making in an outcome-oriented way. Mm -hmm. So they look at the victim and they say, well, I certainly would not have worn that, done that, walked down that alley, blah, 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 blah. And the reason that I'm here and not the victim is because I make better decisions. And then they will say, as a result, you know, the victim is at fault. Right. But- Men on a jury will say, well, the reason that I am sitting in the jury box and not on the defense table is because I would never do this, you know, yeah, touch a, a drink, woman, yeah. t- touch, you know, touch all a those woman things. who didn't want it. Yeah, exactly. So what's interesting to me about that is, again... You know, going back to my my argument that you know judgments are just decisions writ large. People do certainly take into account these personal experiences, but the direction that personal experience will take them in is sort of sometimes unintuitive. Ah. And 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 my struggle is, you know, by the same token, by the same token, if everybody is told and really believes I will accept my flaws and the flaws of the person that I am 
making a decision as to what direction does that push them in? Yeah. And well, my answer immediately, I'm almost done. Yeah. My answer immediately <laughs> is, I'm not sure. And with that answer, that's when I say it's ephemeral and illusory. Because mm. if I can't even say that it's being pushed in a better direction of any sort, I'm not sure why we're even doing the the process. So <laughs> if if I can then, Please. Um, again, you're you're discussing judgment. And this passage has it's it's anti judgment, and you bring up a completely valid and important point that we need juries and judges, and we need judgment in order for society to function. It's just this passage simp is specifically for those times when judgment isn't required, and in fact, when judgment is detrimental to the outcome. So when a doctor is, if let's say. A doctor works in an STD clinic and someone comes in and um, the doctor says, well, you shouldn't have been having unprotected sex. Like that is when judgment is detrimental um, to the doctor's job. Okay. Can I give like a very Emily? Please do. So it cracked me up. There was, I don't even remember what point it was in the passage, but there was a certain point where I was like, oh no, this is what I have been thinking about all year because every movie i saw last year seemed to me not every movie obviously but most of the movies i saw in the last year seemed Hashtag to me Hashtag eb awards <laughs> thank you thank you name drop. um <laughs> <laughs> I'm, we can we I've can name drop i will let you two drink for me That's can we very can we blog drop your uh, oh blog if you want yes that That's would be name. fine with uh, me. it's goodnightdearvoid.tumblr tumblr it's actually just goodnightdearvoid.com now because I ponied oh, up ooh. and got a job. I know. Wow. I got a it's a quote from You've Got Mail, which is my favorite movie. Also, um, future podcast with her and David Holmes, which we already spoke, <laughs> so that's not a name drop. We'll, we'll let you know so you can plug us later and we will obviously plug back. Um, but so every movie I saw last year seemed to me to have the same theme, which was sort of a combination of so and I can't credit the person on Twitter who said this, but we inherit we all inherit our parents' trauma, but we will never understand it. And just Ooh. sort of this like moral ambiguity, um, and Chris Pine, who I'm happy to name drop at any point, said Captain. has this oh Captain, oh, Captain my Captain. Um at at the very did you guys see Wonder Woman? Uh, yeah. No, not oh, yet. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So oh, yeah. He has I have this, I don't, a backlog of movies because I, don't, I try not to watch them by myself yeah. because I get very carried away with... That's not yeah. even the context yeah. in which he was a captain that I was thinking, but he's also a captain there. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Steve Trevor's a captain. He's ugh, my favorite. Anyway, um, does name-dropping Wonder Woman's boyfriend count? I'm going to count it. Do I'm going to well, we raise drank, a glass to we? Steve Trevor. Oh, um, yeah. Hmm. He has this, well, and without character versus actor, without we could spoiling, get into that. <laughs> yeah, without that's a future podcast. Without I wrote a paper on that in undergrad. Mm. Without spoiling too much for Doug, um, Steve Trevor, Chris Pine's character. At slash, this point, I think you can spoil yeah. it. I'll forget. Well, a lot of the good part of Wonder Woman is that Wonder Woman is sort of a god figure. She comes from an island yeah. full of women who like 
uh, they They're don't really do things wrong to each other that much, or if they right. do, they talk about I, it. anyway. I understand um, comic book wise, Wonder right. Woman, and she oh, comes okay. to London and World War One, um, and she like she's trying to decide. She sort of learns at one point that men aren't not men, like mankind and Man. womankind. Humanity is right. not worth right. saving. Yeah. And there's this great part where Chris Pine kind of grabs her by the shoulders and is like, totally, I agree. We aren't worth saving, but also we are. And that's the whole thing. And this is like Loki in Thor and Thor Ragnarok yeah. especially. And, you know, the way Thor cares about his brother, doesn't trust him, wants to save him, knows he can't. The duality of the duality. Right. And uh, this is... Kylo Ren. This has been a huge... <sighs> uh, no, stop, stop. Because I'm... <laughs> Two movies back. Oh okay. no! No, I'm just gonna say I'll just. You're he's, you're also behind on Hamilton. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so... This is a big part of Hamilton too, mm -hmm. right? Aaron, there. You can't say Aaron Burr or Hamilton is the like moral center of that. And since we're out of drinks, and I'm now talking about pop culture, I think I'm just. Oh gonna, man, that was like, like so take many a drinks. Swig, I know, um, but I and yeah, if I could finish yeah, off. The yes, culture. there's a little bit. There's a little bit. There's what my family calls a hearty sip, which is another story <laughs> for another time. Um, based on is, Thomas Hardy? No, based on my uncle Hardy, which is two drinks. Um, uh, my, so this is every time I see a movie, I'm like, you legally, I, this is not a spoiler, would lock up Kylo Ren. Legally, I would lock up Loki. Those are two who are almost certainly guilty of genocide. And just because sure. I think they're cute doesn't mean I can exempt them. <laughs> I do very oh, no. much think they're cute. Uh, but, like, as an impartial judge uh, who doesn't think anybody's cute, which is why I could never be a judge, would have to, <laughs> like, condemn both of them, right? Yeah. Um, war crimes. And this is this is a thing to me of, like, personally... I have a different opinion, which is that the whole point of Star Wars, and this is not a spoiler because it is all of the Star, Star Wars, Wars, is that nobody's beyond saving, right? Sure. If Luke doesn't believe that Darth Vader still has good in him, the Empire is not destroyed. And so you cannot write off Darth Vader as just a war criminal because Darth Vader is necessary to the end of destroying the Emperor. And he does still have good in him. He proves that. And... He does the right thing after a long, long series of wrong things. Actually, and I I am happy to argue towards anybody that the prequel uh, trilogy did an excellent job of establishing the character of Anakin Skywalker. And I've heard this from you on Facebook <laughs> that if the actor who played Kylo Ren played Anakin Skywalker, mm. that we would be praising the um the prequel trilogy. And yes. I do think you're absolutely right. But Adam Driver has brilliant. it all on his face in a way Hayden Christensen never did. I will drink for both of those gorgeous men, Ooh. one of whom is very talented. But honestly, I don't, you know. Natalie Portman is also super talented because <laughs> this is a point my dad brought up. Um, Because her career survived Star Wars. Girl got an Oscar. And has the most fascinating, nuanced portrayal of Jackie Kennedy that has ever been put to film. Oh, super fair. Oh, on that yeah. one. shoot. Is, um, what movie is that? I need It's to... called Jackie. And just like the sheer image of need... Jackie in the pink suit that she was wearing when JFK yeah. died that's covered in blood does so much for the like intricate image of this I need a list of okay. movies just from you to watch. Oh, my Like the canon. Yeah. Two things. According one thing, to Emily. while I'm thinking about it, 
every time I go to the JFK Museum in Dallas, I super start How many buying. times is that? Also, three times. I've been, to, in... I've been to Dallas, uh, the museum for JFK three times. Apparently I... name dropping is a very effective really? game because that's also <laughs> yeah. JFK and oh, this Jackie is pop Kennedy. culture. I, really I, I have you. cried real hard every single time I've been there. Ooh. Second thing. It's great. Um, I still maintain, even with Hayden Christensen, that dude does a really, really good emotional, over-the-top, like, I can't even deal right now. I am at the limits of my emotional ability to handle my life at this moment. Because here's the thing. I'm thinking, like, in the third movie, I think the third movie, I don't remember anymore. It's been years. It's been so many years. And I'm not talking about romance, because forget that. I'm talking about, like, his anger reactions to things were correct. I'll say that anytime he's on the fiery planet at the very end of Revenge of the Sith, I agree with you. Sure. Uh, but, okay, so to the point, this is not, this passage is talking not about if I meet, uh, if I meet Loki. No, yeah, if I, if Loki comes before me in yeah. a context of, is this person guilty of crimes or not? This is talking about Loki in the context of, He's my brother. I'm Thor. He has messed with me throughout my life, but I love him and I know he has a capacity for good. It's like Plato's Republic where he says, um, you know, one theory of being good is just to do well to your, do good to your allies and hate your enemies. If I can go to the Bible, um, I've, I've had, and this is actually what Thor is in my mind, but I've had a longstanding confusion on the story of the prodigal son Mm. um and thor is the prodigal son and loki is the the son who'd been good stays and whispers in the father's ear and and at the end um they slaughter the fatted calf yeah because Mm -hmm. to to feast to feed the the prodigal son son when he returns putting a ring on his hand right and and the other son the son who'd been good the entire time um he he asks his father, uh, you know, how come you've never, how come we've never had a feast for me because I've been good this entire time? And the father says, we're having this feast because it's a good thing that the prodigal son has returned. He once was lost, but now he's found. Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah. Um, and for a very long time, I, because of my life, I was the other son and not the prodigal mm-hmm. son. Same. Um. I I feel like the other son gets shafted in a sense, but the point is, like, you celebrate a good thing regardless of context? I would, I would or sort of flip. How? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. because in a way it's, it's, because I, I feel like that's what the father says, is that it's, it's a good thing that the prodigal son's returned home and that's what we're celebrating. I think. But. And I don't want to interpret the Bible. I'm not at all qualified. You're more qualified than either of us. I'm an unbaptized limb of Satan. (laughs) I am a baptized and confirmed Presbyterian who is now a profligate. I just I am a Christian mystic at this point, but I'm not a um I'm not a post evangelical Christian mystic. That is what because I, I skipped that point. I have learned that my the term for me this week is post evangelical progressive because, Christian. Because nice. I read that um Facebook. Oh, it was so good. Right? Um and so I I think the point of that story and I used to bring up my mom would bring up that story to me when I was like, I've been making A's 
all throughout third grade. And then Kenny, which is not a name drop because it's not a real person, uh, <laughs> has made 40s on everything. And suddenly he made an A and our teacher like gave him a cookie. Like, why don't I get a cookie? And my mom would be like, prodigal son. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't get that either. Um, it doesn't make sense on its face. I think, and I cannot speak for Jesus. Uh, but what I would say is that the highest, our highest value is redemption. Our highest value isn't goodness for goodness's own sake. Our highest value is redemption and the recognition that you can be good at any time. You can, it is never too late to choose to be good. You have never made too many mistakes to be good. You can come home whenever. And that's one of the things I love about Loki is I sort of get the sense that Thor doesn't trust him, but Thor will welcome him home whenever. And that's my, why I weep when Thor and Loki interact in Avengers because I'm like, that's a picture of Christ. My favorite part, I, I'm going to say favorite. I, I think it is my favorite part of Ragnarok is when Thor and Loki are riding the elevator. And that's Thor my tells, favorite part. And Thor tells Loki, hey, you should stay here because this in what in whatever that place was called. Because this is the place for you. Like, you you love it here. This place yeah. was made for you. Yeah. And you should stay here. And to me, that is acceptance of who Loki is as a person. Yeah. In the same way that the first Thor movie is Thor's acceptance of himself. Yeah. And his, his limitations. Yeah. And also the third Thor movie, I guess, in accepting oh that he's not the god of hammers. Uh, he fra <laughs> Thor Ragnarok, directed by Taika Waititi, my favorite director. Ooh, name and drop. The director of the movie, I think Doug should watch. You've told the I've seen it. Oh, you've seen you, it. You showed yes, it to me. I texted this. it to myself. It was amazing. It's and so then good. I suggested you should watch Rubber. Yes, Taika Waititi is a new is a. I believe he's of the Maori tribe from New Zealand, and they gave him a Thor movie, and he was like, cool, I'll make it about colonialism and how that's bad, <laughs> which is the most wonderful thing. Oh. Um, but I I love that scene. There's a line from Lady Bird, to mention another <laughs> movie, um, where Lady Bird has been writing about, she's, she's the protagonist, she's a high school girl, punk, all that stuff. Um, she's been writing about sacramento for her college application essays and she lives in sacramento and the whole movie ladybird she's like i hate sacramento i can't wait to get out um but this there's this fantastic um nun play at her school played by lois smith who was in movies with james dean and is still killing it um she ladybird says uh or the nun says you give sacramento a lot of attention i can tell how much you love it and ladybird goes I don't think I love Sacramento. The whole audience is like, what? She doesn't love Sacramento. She hates it. She can't wait to get out. And the nun says, love and attention is kind of the same thing, don't you think? And I think that part of what's going on between Thor and Loki is how much attention Thor pays to Loki and how much that conveys how much he loves him. So, unfortunately, all of fantastic things must come to an end Aww. including this podcast which is at the hour and 30 minute mark which wow i think you're oh, going no, to be I'm so sorry this is no the longest so yeah you're going to be the longest guest i think and rightfully so Thank because this has been out. so far my favorite episode yay um so it comes to that point of the show where i do final thoughts and i'd like to go we starting with chris where we, where we all do final thoughts you're right yes i'd like to start with chris and then work 
the way across the room. Perfect. Um, so, Chris, what are your final thoughts on this episode? Let's talk about what Emily just said. That this notion of love and attention are so often the same thing. I think that that framing of love and attention kind of draws <laughs> attention back to what we're really talking about within the framing of the quotation that the, the lengthy quotation that Doug read to us at the beginning of the show. Mm. If, you know, because the reality is, you know, under that theory of life, and let's remove decision making and judgment mm -hmm. under that theory of life, you, and I know, we didn't say love. We no. said acceptance. But acceptance of the self, acceptance of the darkness, and acceptance of the darkness in a way that universalizes the darkness to all within the species, and a true respect and acceptance for the darkness that exists within the human species, essentially boils down to a kind of attention, where you just mm. kind of say, well... It's there. I see that it's there. And I'm going to respect it as being there. But after this hour and a half of conversation, I have got to say, I remain entirely unconvinced that that attention to the existence of certain darknesses within the human condition lead us in any particular direction when we are making decisions. And I'm sorry, but I have to hold on to this. I think that any view of this overall worldview that does, just ignores or holds to be void the decision-making qualities of the human species is just incomplete. I think realistically, if you're going to make decisions about your own life, about the way that you conduct yourself in this world as a human being, and you take on Alan Watts and Carl Jung's you know, put together theory of the world, you eventually have to deal with the fact that what they're telling you to do is just to look at things and accept that they are there. And based on everything I've said so far and based on everything that's been said so far on the show, I just don't see how that pushes you in any valuable direction, except that it's just there. So I will hold on to this, ladies and gentlemen of the, of the audience. It's a I'm a feature uh, audience. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm sorry. It's ephemeral. Don't be sorry. It's illusory. And that's where I'm at. And I would love for any listeners to tell me how or why Chris and I are coming to exact opposite conclusions. But I maintain the exact opposite conclusion that it is... I don't know. It is sort of, I, I maintain the same warm fuzzies, although they're a little warmer and fuzzier now that I've had so many drinks at so many names, um, mm. that you read at the beginning, that I felt when you read the passage at the beginning of the podcast. All right. So in lieu of final thoughts, I have a final quote to share. Yay. Um, and I'd like this to be the very end of our podcast. So normally we have Chris sound us out. Um, but I, I'd like to go over that just real quick. Um, and I think I'll say what Chris is going to say, which is, um, Emily, thank you so much for being our guest. Because lovely. this has been a wonderful, beautiful podcast. Mm -hmm. And you were an integral part 
of this entire discuss this entire hour and 30 minute discussion <laughs> and we want to thank all of our listeners um as we always do for coming in and listening because and, and for your support um because i i constantly get text messages from one of my friends who listens to the podcast um how each episode is better than the last yay uh thank you wes and we are out of drinks to name drop these drinks. So and we salute you. The, yeah, uh, we salute you. We salute Zach. We salute whoever listens to this podcast, including that I'm not sure who it is, but there's someone who like favorited us and listened to us all the time and likes our videos on Podbean and has submitted comments. And I don't know who that is, but thank you so much for your support. <laughs> so do the quote. Um, yeah. So here's the quote, and it comes from a Presbyterian minister. Um, who was also involved in pop culture. You guys might know him as uh, Fred Rogers. And I think Mr. Rogers is an example of someone who embodies this quote that we talked about, about mm -hmm. accepting others. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is what he says at the end of every episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, and I'd like to say this to everyone listening to me right now. You've made this day a special day, by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. <laughs>